DW Inside Europe. Hello and welcome. I'm Kate Laycock in Germany. On today's programme, trouble in Bavaria, an anti-Semitism scandal with national implications. Running dry, Istanbul only has two months' worth of drinking water left. If enough sufficient precipitation doesn't occur in early September and October, the Istanbul Water Supply Administration will put some measures. Water users and water administrators need to change their attitude to use water as efficiently as possible. And long legacy. Budapest celebrates 150 years of Jewish history. Those stories and more coming up on the programme. The German political landscape has been rocked this week by an anti-Semitism scandal unfolding in the southern state of Bavaria. With regional elections only a month away, the Süddeutsche Zeitung newspaper revealed the existence of an anti-Semitic pamphlet which it said it had reason to believe had been authored and distributed by one Hubert Aiwanger when he was a grammar school pupil in the late 1980s. So, just who is Hubert Aiwanger, and why does this allegation from his past carry such heavy weight, not only for Bavaria, but for Germany as a whole? Questions that I put to DW's political correspondent, Thomas Sparrow. I think until recently, only very few people here in Germany knew who Hubert Aiwanger is and what role he plays in regional politics. So, as a start, he is not necessarily a national figure, a figure that is known across the country. But in Bavaria, in the southern part of Germany, in Germany's biggest region, one of the most powerful regions, he certainly plays a role as the deputy of Markus Söder, who's the regional leader there, and also as the head of a rather small party in in Bavaria, the Freie Wähler um, that is a, a party that is actually in government with Markus Söder's CSU. And to make things even more complicated, because German politics are complicated, the CSU is the sister party of the CDU, the conservative bloc here in Germany. Uh, so an important figure in Bavaria. And um, indeed, he, he plays up to the Bavarian iconography quite a bit, doesn't he? I mean, if you see pictures of him, he's rarely to be seen outside of traditional Bavarian dress. That's correct. And also in Bavarian parties and Bavarian events. And that is particularly relevant now because Bavaria is going to the polls next month. So one of the reasons why this is no longer a regional story, but a national debate has to do with the fact that this is all part of an election process in Bavaria, which, as I stressed, is not only Germany's biggest region, but also a region that is politically and economically also influential. Right. So a lot at stake here. Perhaps you could just take me through the accusations against Hubert Aiwanger. This was an accusation that began uh, by the Süddeutsche Zeitung, so one of Germany's leading daily newspapers. They received this uh, pamphlet that was written many, many decades ago in the 80s. And uh, they interviewed several people who alleged that the author of this uh, pamphlet was, in fact, Hubert Aiwanger during his school time. Now, Ivanga indeed admitted that a copy of the pamphlet or copies of the pamphlet were found in his school bag and that uh, he was, in a way, 
punished by the school afterwards. But he has denied time and time again that he was the author of the pamphlet. Uh, and in fact, his brother then came to say that he had written uh, the pamphlet. The problem is that it goes, the debate goes beyond who wrote that pamphlet. And it is also now a matter of how you deal with Germany's culture of remembrance, how you deal with that past, how you make sure that that past is understood and dealt with in a responsible way that goes according also to German laws. And that's why the criticism towards Ivanger has not only focused on whether he may or may not have been the uh, the author of that pamphlet, but also how he has dealt with the issue since. In fact, there was an expert that spoke to, to DW, the center, an expert from the Center of Anti-Semitism Research at one of Berlin's universities, who said the problem is not what a stupid boy had in his school bag 35 years ago, but the way it has been dealt with by the now grown-up man, which shows that he hasn't understood anything. Uh, Ivanga did apologize and uh, did mention that he was that he didn't like this pamphlet at all, but he didn't resign. Uh, the head of Bavaria, Marco Söder, then asked him to answer 25 questions about the pamphlet and many of the answers to those questions he said he simply couldn't remember or he wasn't sure about them. And Marco Söder then uh, decided that there was essentially no proof, or no substantial proof to remove Ivanga from his post. Again, something that was criticized and there are indeed experts that say that sooner or later Ivanga will basically have to leave his post, uh, even if he wasn't the one who indeed wrote that pamphlet, but also because of the way that he has dealt with the controversy since. Polls show that the Freie Wähler actually seem to have profited from the scandal. They, their um, percentage points have risen 4% since it broke. What do you think is going on there? Well, Bavaria is a very special place in Germany. And the fact that we're talking, for example, in Bavaria of the CSU, so the Christian Social Union, which is again the sister party of the CDU, the Conservative Party in the rest of the country, just gives you an idea of how special, how different Bavaria is. The fact that you have these two conservative parties that form together the conservative bloc. And I do think it's a little bit too early to identify whether the Freie Wähler or whether the CSU are going to profit or are going to be harmed by this debate because I somehow believe that this is not the end of the debate. In other words, the fact that Markus Söder decided to keep his deputy Hubert Aivanger does not necessarily mean that this is the end of the story. There have been now further uh, revelations or further comments that apparently Aivanger was not only involved in a way with this pamphlet but other cases as well. This is something that still continues to be debated. Probably media outlets are looking at, at the story more carefully and I can imagine that this is not the end of the story, especially since we're looking very closely at Bavaria and uh, the polls and the um, election coming up next month. So I would be careful about jumping to conclusions when it comes to identifying whether this scandal, which is, by the way, now a national scandal with even the German Chancellor weighing in on the controversy, will or will not affect Ivanga and Söder in a positive or a negative way. Thomas Sparrow, thank you very much. Uh, and I'm sure that you will be keeping your eye on developments for us. Thank you, Kate. DW's political correspondent Thomas Sparrow there. Follow DW News for all the latest on Bavaria's regional elections, which are coming up in October. To Istanbul now, where there is concern that the city could be running dry. 
Turkey's largest city, home to over 16 million people, is currently facing one of its worst ever droughts and record-breaking high temperatures, blamed on climate change. With many of the city's water reservoirs nearly empty, experts warn Istanbul could face water shortages in weeks if more rain doesn't come soon. And, as Dorian Jones reports, Istanbul's water crisis could have far-reaching political consequences as well. The Istanbul Water and Sewage Administration announcing last month emergency efforts and longer-term plans to deal with the growing water crisis the city is facing. Grass is now growing in many reservoirs around the city that were once filled with water. A dry winter, followed by a summer with record high temperatures, has nearly emptied many of the city's dams. The city authorities regularly update the falling dam levels and warn of the need for conservation. At the water conference, Istanbul Mayor Ekrem Imamoglu blames climate change for the city's plight. The biggest threat in the world is the climate crisis, and the fight against it has to increase. We should be able to look at this fundamental issue facing the world in the name of humanity and recognize that it goes beyond individual states, and we should be prepared. Water is now being pumped 200 kilometers from Turkey's Melan River to Istanbul to meet the city's needs. Istanbul's unique geography is complicating those efforts. The Bosphorus Waterway divides the city between Europe and Asia, making it an increasingly tricky job to juggle water supplies across the two continents, says Tuba Olmez Hanja of Istanbul's Water and Sewage Administration. What we are doing, we have got an integrated water management and doing the most optimization studies, taking the water from Melan River and also transferring it from Asian part to the European part. The Asian part, the population is 35%. At the European part of Istanbul, the population is 65%. And the water sources are higher at the Asian part. And the water sources are lower, it's approximately 30% at the European part. Videos on the internet by the water authorities are calling on consumers to reduce their consumption, while high users receive text messages warning of their consumption. Special valves are being offered to reduce water pressure to minimize use. But experts warn that with record temperatures increasing evaporation from the remaining water in Istanbul's dams, time could run out for the city if rain doesn't come soon, warns Dusan Yildiz, head of Turkey's Hydropolitics Association. They have already explained that use water as efficient as possible. And uh, if enough sufficient precipitation doesn't occur in early September and October, as last year, uh, Istanbul Water Supply Administration will put some measures uh, like some controls of uh, using water. Water users and water administrators need to change their attitude to use 
water as efficient as possible. Istanbul's water authorities say they are determined to avoid water cuts and are looking for early rain, but acknowledge they face a growing water shortage, claims Hanja of Istanbul's Water and Sewage Administration. It is a potential problem. I cannot say it's not a problem. Uh, but uh, as I told you, we are trying to do our best till rain comes. Rain cannot come soon enough for Istanbul's mayor Imamolo, whom observers say will be determined to avoid water cuts as he faces re-election next year. President Recep Tayyip Erdogan has declared his determination that his party will regain control of Turkey's largest city. Doreen Jones, DW, Istanbul. A quick reminder here that Inside Europe is available as a podcast and that we are grateful for all your ratings and reviews since they really do help us to reach more people with our journalism. We have an immersive dive into 150 years of Jewish history in Budapest coming up next. In the meantime, however, I'm Kate Laycock in Germany and you're listening to Inside Europe. A senior government official in Hungary came under sharp criticism this week for praising the country's World War II-era leader, an ally of Nazi Germany who implemented laws that resulted in the deportation and deaths of thousands of Hungarian Jews. The comments, which were made at a ceremony in memory of Miklos Horthy, Hungary's regent during most of World War II, came at a time when the leadership of the capital, Budapest, is attempting to encourage a Jewish revival in the city. That very same weekend, representatives of both Israel and Hungary had joined together to launch a seven-month event celebrating 150 years of Jewish Budapest in connection with both the 150th anniversary of the founding of the city and the European Day of Jewish Culture. Our Budapest correspondent, Stefan Boss, has more. The Budapest Festival Orchestra, conducted by Ivan Fischer, makes musical history as it performs a new piece of music for the first time. It's called the Budapest Overture and was written by composer Patrick Ola. Several thousand Hungarians gather to hear it in the city's Hero Square. The music, echoing through the streets here on a late summer day, reflects the challenges Budapest has faced for over the past 150 years. War, revolution and dictatorship. The city's mayor, Gergely Karacson, says that the 150th anniversary of Budapest marks more than the unification of the regions of Pest, Buda and Obuda into one city. That's why he and Israel's ambassador to Hungary launched the seven-months-long event 150 Years of Jewish Budapest as part of the celebrations. Karacson believes that Budapest was born out of Hungarianness and Europeanness, allowing Jews and Christians to coexist in this city of nearly two million people. In a symbolic move, 
Karachon reopened the renovated Lanshit, or Chain Bridge, Hungary's first permanent bridge crossing the Danube River. It unites the western and eastern sides of Budapest. This is the day that everyone was waiting for, the opening of the chain bridge. This structure is really the pride of Budapest. It's wonderful and I hope everyone will use it. This bridge is also a link to the future. Crossing the chain bridge eastwards is the Jewish Quarter. Here, one of Europe's largest annual Jewish cultural festivals is underway. Music reverberates through the Dohain Street Synagogue, the largest in Europe. Damash Mester, who heads the Budapest Jewish community, opens the event. Hihetetlen, de igaz, 25 éves múltra tekint vissza a zsidó kulturális fesztivál. This Jewish festival has been held for 25 years. The aim of the event has always been to strengthen Jewish identity. And now we also remember that 150 years ago, Pest, Buda and Obuda were united to create Budapest. A famous Jewish doctor said at the time, now we are all part of Budapest. Major cultural developments began back then, in which the Jewish community played a significant role. And that still resonates today. Mester says that until World War II broke out, Budapest was similar to New York, with its mix of cultures. And now the city wants to bring that atmosphere back through different music styles and art forms. Yet the synagogue where he spoke was once part of the narrow Jewish ghetto created by a Hungarian government that cooperated with Nazi Germany. Tens of thousands of Jews were cramped into overcrowded buildings. No food was allowed in, rubbish and waste were not collected and the dead piled up on the streets. Most Hungarian Jews were deported to Nazi death camps. However, Susanna Toroni the director of the Hungarian Jewish Museum and Archives in Budapest suggests that Jewish resilience during the war and then the post-war communist dictatorship enabled a Jewish revival. I would like to remember on the last General Assembly of the Hungarian Jewish Museum in 1943 and it was uh, just uh, before the German invasion to Hungary and uh, they had two speeches. One by Philip Grimwald, who was the deputy director of the Jewish Museum, and he reported uh, on the current situation of the Jewish collections in Europe. So he knew about the Anschluss, he knew about the closing of the German Jewish Museums, the fate of the Vienna Jewish Museum, the story of the Prague Jewish Museum. So as he emphasized, in the autumn of 1943, the Budapest Jewish Museum remained the only historical Jewish institution in Europe that could operate as it had before the war. It was followed by another speech, uh, Ernest Namenyi, a well-known art historian, then co-president of the museum, optimistically invoked the story of Noah uh, from the Genesis, and he discussed the scope and the necessity of sheltering the Jewish heritage until the rainbow of peace will reappear. In the decades that followed the war, Jewish leaders were forced to cooperate with the communist regime. 
Yet they managed to salvage valuable items and maintain the Jewish Museum as well as the Communist bloc's only rabbinical seminary. These actions ensured that future generations wouldn't forget the city's rich Jewish cultural and religious heritage. The efforts by Holocaust survivors and others to preserve this past seem to have worked. Around 600,000 Hungarian Jews were murdered during the Holocaust, also known as the Shoah. But the country's Jewish community now comprises at least 100,000 people, the largest in Eastern Europe outside Russia. The city authorities hope that Budapest's 150th anniversary will help heal the wounds of history and herald a new era of cultural excitement. Stefan Bos, DW Budapest. Time is nearly up for this half hour, so before we go to break, we'd better squeeze in our Spotify quiz question. Last week, we asked you who had said, to understand Europe, you have to be a genius or French. The majority of you thought that the quotation came from former French President Jacques Chirac, but it was in fact from former US Secretary of State Madeleine Albright. So congratulations to those of you who did get it right. And to everyone else, don't worry, because my French husband was fooled by the Chirac red herring as well. Now, this week, we are going to be taking up an invitation which was issued by Germany's Chancellor Olaf Scholz, who said that he was looking forward to the memes after he was forced to wear an eye patch following a jogging accident. So, what we want to know is this. Which fictional pirate do you think the German Chancellor most resembles? Is it... The zany and curiously lovable Captain Jack Sparrow from Pirates of the Caribbean. It is my intention to commandeer one of these ships, pick up a crew and tortuga, raid, pillage, plunder and otherwise pilfer my Weasley Black Guts out. I said no lies. I think he's telling the truth. If he were telling the truth, he wouldn't have told us. The bungling and pompous Captain Pugwash from the Pugwash children's stories. Suppose I'm lucky to be alive. But oh dear me, my ship foundered, my shipmates lost... Not a sail in sight, and I'm all alone on the boundless ocean. Jumping jellyfish, what's that? The cruel and vengeful Captain James Hook from Peter Pan. Well, my stupid, sorry, parasitic sacks of entrails. (laughs) Revenge is mine. Long live the hook! I baited that hook, and now I'm very proud to announce... We have his children. Or the complex and cunning Long John Silver from Treasure Island. Mr. Silver, sir. Such is my name, to be sure. And who might you be, lad? To take part in this piratical poll, head over to Spotify and click on this week's edition of the show. (laughs) 
Our plain old email address is also, of course, always open for business, insideeurope at dw.com for feedback and ideas for future shows. This is Inside Europe, and I'm Kate Laycock in Germany. This is Inside Europe and I'm Kate Laycock in Germany. We have three stories coming up for you this half hour. First up, Church Asylum, a look at the Christian communities sheltering refugees from deportation. Then, Silver Screen, the 80th Venice International Film Festival is held in the shadow of Hollywood's actors and writers strike. I would also say that there's discontent around the fact that the issue does not seem to be taken as seriously in Europe because those issues are part of the European movie industry as well. And by those issues, I mean, you know, fair pay and also how AI is taking over uh, creative uh, liberty. And finally, Opera Masterclass. The doors of Romania's Salbeck Castle are open for business. So do stay tuned. Broadcasting from Germany. This is Inside Europe. On August 30th, 1983, a 23-year-old asylum seeker threw himself out of the window of a Berlin courtroom out of fear of being extradited to the military regime in Turkey. His death sparked the modern church asylum movement in Germany, an ecumenical network of parishes prepared to place themselves between refugees and the authorities in order to bring about a re-examination of cases and prevent deportation. Over the past 40 years, thousands of people have been sheltered in this way. But how does church asylum work exactly? What are its risks and limitations? And who are the people keeping it alive today? Ben Batka has been attending a Berlin Congress on church asylum to find out. <laughs> Hier starb heute vor 40 Jahren der politische Flüchtling Cemal Kemal Altun durch einen Sprung. Late last month, some 50 church people, activists and Turkish immigrants commemorated the death of Turkish asylum seeker Cemal Kemal Altun with a wreath ceremony and speeches. On a hot summer day in 1983, Altun was sitting in a room on the sixth floor of a court in West Berlin. The 23-year-old was facing extradition to Turkey whose military dictatorship accused the leftist student of involvement in the murder of former Turkish minister Gün Sazak in May 1980, an allegation Altun had always denied. As soon as his handcuffs were released, Altun got up from his chair and jumped out of an open window. In the hours and days that followed his suicide, 
Thousands of people took to the streets of West Berlin and other cities for spontaneous demonstrations. Adil Yid was a close friend of Altun. Standing next to the memorial stone in front of the former court building that now houses a hotel, he remembers how Altun's death was the start signal for the nationwide church asylum movement. His death left a deep mark on me. I couldn't think straight for days. Had he been extradited to Turkey, he would have undoubtedly been tortured. He was driven to commit suicide. Without church asylum, many people would have been deported and then lost their lives. Church asylum has been providing an alternative for asylum seekers in the face of restrictive asylum policies of the German government. I hope it continues. Altun wasn't the only asylum seeker who committed suicide out of fear of being deported to Turkey. Over 100 made the same fateful decision. According to Asylum in the Church, a network founded in the wake of Altun's death, there are currently 431 known active church asylums involving at least 655 people, about 136 of whom are children. Church asylum is often the last resort after all legal remedies have been exhausted or when a deportation is imminent. 29-year-old Ibrahim is one of them. After fleeing Syria last year in June, the father of two arrived in Germany four months later via the so-called Balkan route. We were treated badly in Turkey and worse in Bulgaria, where they beat us up because we were refugees. It was racist behavior. In Germany, my asylum application was rejected, but I was afraid to go back to Syria. And no one would receive me except for the church. That's why I took refuge there. They treated me well. I was so relieved to receive protection here, because without it, my future would be in tatters. After German authorities rejected his asylum bid earlier this year, he was facing deportation to Bulgaria, the EU country where he first got registered. Ibrahim is one of six asylum seekers currently staying at the Church of the Holy Cross in Berlin, all of them Syrians. In 1983, the church was the first congregation to grant shelter to rejected asylum seekers on its premises. I'm Marita Lesny. I'm the chairwoman of the parish church council and I work for church asylum over 20 years. To Lesny, the tradition of church asylum is about supporting often traumatized people fearing deportation to another country where they face violence or worse and giving them a chance for a fair asylum proceeding. When I meet the first time with a refugee, they are very afraid, they are shaking, they can't believe that gives the chance here. And when they see I make the certificate of protection, they are so happy and they smile. You can see it on their face. Lesni says the hurdles for church asylum are high. Only so-called hardship cases, those who face human rights violations or other serious harms in the country they'd be deported to, typically have a chance to be selected. Authorities usually only have six months to send people back. If the asylum seekers serve this time in church asylum, the danger of deportation is averted, which succeeds 98% of the time, according to asylum in the church. Afterwards, asylum seekers usually get a chance to apply or reapply for asylum and might receive subsidiary protection thereafter. These so-called Dublin cases, named after where this EU regulation was signed, make up the vast majority of people in church asylum in Germany. 
they first get registered in another EU member state, often a country on the bloc's external border like Bulgaria or Croatia, where human rights violations like pushbacks and detention are widespread. Would-be asylum seekers who try to cross the border into the European Union are reportedly facing illegal and violent pushbacks. New investigations using video recordings. Over the decades, the practice of church asylum has been criticized and threatened time and again. Providing shelter, for instance, carries a certain risk, as clerics have a duty to report people they shelter to the authorities, which typically respect the decision even though there is no legal basis for it in Germany. But there are exceptions. In 2021, for instance, a pastor was convicted for sheltering a young Iranian. And in July, an Iraqi couple was evicted from church asylum, albeit the deportation was later called off. One of the current threats is the EU asylum reform, under which the transfer period for deportations for Dublin cases would be extended from 6 to 12 months or even longer. In practice, this would mean that asylum seekers would have to stay twice as long on average in church asylum to avoid deportation, an even bigger burden especially for smaller parishes, all of which have to cover their guests' entire cost of living and medical care. We must not go down the route of more deportations and erecting borders and more fortress Europe. The direction must be fighting root causes of displacement and being an open and humane Europe at the same time. We must not see people who come here as a burden or a problem, something we need to solve. We need to be humans for and with each other, which will make us richer. That's Protestant Bishop Christian Stäblein during his sermon at the Church Asylum Congress in Berlin last week. He also said that the individual right to asylum, which some German politicians recently call into question despite it being enshrined in Germany's constitution, was unalienable. For the past 40 years, Church Asylum has helped more than 10,000 asylum seekers by buying time for the authorities to re-examine their asylum cases. For Ibrahim, the Syrian asylum seeker in Berlin, Church Asylum gave him a chance to stay in Germany, if only for the time being. I want to work and live here in Germany safely with my children. It would mean that my life is a bit stable. I haven't worked in a long time. So I hope to continue my studies until I can work again. Ben Bartke, DW, Berlin. I was a stranger and you invited me in. The Gospels put into practice there. But now, from the sacred to the profane, as we turn to the glitz and glam of the silver screen. Buonasera a tutti e benvenuti all'ottantesima edizione della mostra internazionale d'arte cinematografica della Biennale di Venezia. The 80th Venice International Film Festival is drawing to an end. The world's oldest film festival, which takes place on the island of Lido in the Venice Lagoon, is usually a magnet for Hollywood stars. But this year, against the ongoing background of the Hollywood actors and writers' strikes, things have been rather different. Our reporter, Giada Santana, was in Venice for the opening weekend, so I rang her up to find out more. <laughs> Hi, Kate. So it was definitely an exciting weekend with the opening of awaited movies like Poor Things by Yorgos Lantimos. Uh, the festival is welcoming lots more visitors than in the past two years, and the crowd is also more international with, you know, more filmmakers and cinephiles coming from Asia and the States. Um, you can really tell we're finally beyond the COVID pandemic. There weren't as many big-name Hollywood stars as usual, but I believe that you did get a glimpse of someone quite exciting on the red carpet. Is this right? 
Yes, you're you're absolutely right. Uh, this year was the movie directors opening the red carpet, and I got to see quite a few from Woody Allen to Sofia Coppola and uh, Wes Anderson. Wow. Okay. Wes Anderson, by the way, appearing alone on the red carpet, which was quite telling because uh, his film The Wonderful Story of Henry Sugar has an A-list cast. None of them were there because his film did not meet the requirements set out by the Screen Actors Guild in order for actors to be able to attend without breaking the strike. I'm going to slip in a question here because there was one Hollywood star who did appear to promote his film because his film did make the criteria. Now that star was Adam Driver. I'm asking you this, Judd, because you're Italian and there's been a lot of controversy over Adam Driver's film because he is playing Enzo Ferrari. So this Italian um, motor racing legend the sort of the unease about the film is simply around is it okay for an american actor to play an iconic italian what do you think what do your fellow italians think um you could say that you definitely touch on a hot topic right there i was just there when favino one of the most important actors and filmmakers in venice was asking uh you know how is this okay and on one side, I do really understand the, the fascination with Italian culture and, and the language and, you know, the, the, the style and that came out with House of Gucci and it's coming out with Ferrari. It's a sort of celebration. But on the other, it also feels uh, like a little stereotypical and sometimes a bit tasteless, yes. But I'm definitely not uh, impartial on this topic. <laughs> okay, so full credit to a driver um, for the the strike credentials of his film, but not so not so hot on the Italian portrayal. I have to say that if he ever wants to play me or indeed my husband in any upcoming biopic, then um, I am more than happy. <laughs> um, uh, listen, um, these conversations that you've been having with filmmakers at the festival, what was the general feeling amongst the European filmmakers that you were talking to about um, what's going on in America um, in terms of the actors and uh, screenwriters unions being in this prolonged situation of strike? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, most filmmakers here at the festival are following up close the protests happening in, in the States and they're endorsing the SAG after protests, most of them regarding writers and, and actors' labor rights. I would also say that there's discontent around the fact that the issue does not seem to be taken as seriously in Europe because those issues are part of the European movie industry as well. And by those issues, I mean, you know, fair pay and also how AI is taking over uh, creative uh, liberty. So definitely lots of feelings. Right. And, and this is actually, we've actually got a, a clip here um, making some of these points. Perhaps you could introduce it for me, Jada. Yes, I got to speak to Ula. She was a young uh, cinema student from Poland. Uh, she just got to the to the movie festival, uh, but she already had some criticism towards, you know, the general atmosphere, let's say. Italy, like most of Europe, just considers what's happening in America as like, oh, we don't have to deal with it because it's not our issue. But literally almost all of their, I mean, all of their headliners are American films and American creators. So all of these really established filmmakers that are here with their films have not done anything to make a stand about this. Polish film student 
Ula there. Now, look, the issues at stake in the writers and actors strike in the US, there there are lots of issues, but one of the key issues is, of course, the role of AI uh, and its impact on the filmmaking profession. Was this an issue that was highlighted at the festival this year? Um, Yes, very much so. The Venice Movie Festival has been offering several panels and talks on AI and its future and how it can be integrated in the movie industry. However, the choice to do so in what has been perceived as a positive light has been controversial for many. For instance, Sonia, a Belarusian filmmaker, was particularly concerned about the Venice Movie Festival's stance on the topic. Literally every other or every third um, event or panel or talk was around uh, AI and how it affects the industry and how we can better ourselves or our craft with it. Which is really worrying because uh, the protests are still happening really, like, actively and it is still a really big problem and I feel like it's going to directly impact me and my friends as well and all of the people in the industry and the tone deafness with which uh, the Venice Film Festival is uh, kind of pushing this agenda that AI is the like the next big thing and we really need to dive deep into it while people are still losing their jobs it's really a big problem to me. Listen, I'm curious. Um, You're a bit of a film buff, I hear. This wasn't your first festival, was it? Uh, No, I've been going for quite a few years now, definitely. Yeah, I'm a fun girl of not so much the red carpet uh, as much as uh, indie cinema. And what about your own sort of personal highlight? Was there a film that really grabbed you this year? Um, Yeah, I would definitely say Poor Things by Yorgos Lanthimos. It has been the movie for most people that have been at the festival and I'm hopeful it will, uh, it might win, let's say. Okay, fantastic. Well, you heard it here first. Journalist and bona fide Euro cinephile Giada Santana there. The Venice Film Festival wraps up this weekend, so let's see if Giada's predictions come true. I'm Kate Laycock in Germany. You're listening to Inside Europe. Now, it really is a case of nice work if you can get it here on Inside Europe this week. Whilst Giada Santana was mingling with filmmakers in Venice, journalist Stephen McGrath had got himself a gig reporting from an opera festival in a Romanian castle. There is a serious backdrop to these delights, however. After Romania joined the European Union in 2007, freedom of movement prompted millions of citizens to leave the country seeking higher wages abroad. The impact has been disproportionately felt in rural communities where opportunities are often in short supply. So, the Salbeck Opera Festival, held in the western village of Patrish, is a conscious attempt to breathe life back into the community. Here is Stephen McGrath to tell us more. Salbeck Castle punctuates the heart of Patrish, 
a picturesque village situated in an area of Romania's Carpathian Mountains, noted for its rich wildlife and its outstanding natural beauty. This 18th century grade A historic monument with its English style gardens has a rich and storied history, but today it looks drab and forlorn and paints a picture of neglect. I've come here to meet Anna Maria Mihaiescu. After a 35 year career at the World Bank, she set up the Salbeck Association, an ambitious project to restore the sprawling estate into a cultural hub that aims to boost local prosperity and provide jobs for the community. Really, it became like a focus once I retired and I started to spend more time in Romania. Going from village to village, I have realized that unless we are taking a holistic approach to the rural regeneration, uh, we are going to pay as a generation by far more to decrease the discrepancies between rural and urban and we are talking about 40% of the Romanian population. I started looking, what can I do as sort of uh, last project? And uh, the result is the Salbeck. On a scorching Saturday in late August, the association inaugurated the first edition of the International Salbeck Opera Masterclass. Anna described it as a logistical nightmare, but it saw 22 singers aged between 18 and 30 from several European countries perform an array of scores to a bustling audience at the castle grounds. I hope that with our project we will show that it's possible. And that's why we also started with um, a cultural project which is one of the most complex to start and do master classes in a remote village. To bring here the three pianos, it was uh, a logistical nightmare (laughs) to convince the professors that it can be done uh, it was quite a challenge. The noble estate was historically owned by the Salbeck family until the mid-19th century, followed by notable Hungarian and Austrian families until 1920, when it was sold to a Romanian family. But it was later confiscated by the communist authorities. They turned it into a school for special needs children until the mid-2000s. For decades there was indifference to the building's architectural heritage and the structure fell into a state of disrepair. Uh, The county of Arad during the 19th century and the 20th, it was very much integrated in the European culture. And uh, after the revolution somehow they lagged behind and they are still. But Arad, in spite of having all the necessary ingredients, it's lagging behind. Before the opera got underway, I went for a stroll around Patrish to speak to some locals. 
The village is a typical rural settlement where many Ikauta living tend into their farmsteads, rearing animals and growing crops. But many, especially young people, are driven away by a lack of economic opportunities. We need jobs. There aren't any here, and so the younger people leave. We're interested in restoring the castle for the youth, because only the old people remain here. My mother worked at the castle for 39 years. She was a nurse and a night supervisor for 17 years and took care of the children. I think this will become a tourist area, and hopefully the locals will benefit from the jobs. An audience of about 250 people turned out at the castle event, more than expected. The surrounding lawns, with their centuries-old oak trees, were bustling, guests sipped aperitifs, and a team of cooks were busy preparing a sit-down feast. The scene felt fitting for a castle project with ambitions in the cultural sector. The castle estate was purchased for half a million euros, but Anna estimates the total restoration cost to be far higher, given that it is a Class A monument, which includes 17 hectares of grounds. That means specialist historical studies must be carried out before the authorities issue any building permits. Anna says the village has a historical link to Romanian classical music and a special personal connection. When I came here, I have discovered that in this village was born Sabine Dragoi, who is one of the few Romanian composers of opera. And during my college years, uh, my French professor at university was Sabine Dragoi's daughter. And we have been great friends until she passed away. So I felt like, you know, it's a sign of destiny. After the singing wraps up, some of the performers relax over by the refreshments bar. I catch up with two of them, a Romanian baritone named Andrei Marinake and Swiss dramatic mezzo-soprano Elisa van Mal. I think it's a beautiful place to sing. It's really, it has potential to host concerts. Uh, and in a general way, I came to meet the mezzo-soprano uh, Ruxandra Donose, and uh, so I'm really happy to have been able to work with her. I think that was really, really useful. And what do you think of the, the grounds here? It's beautiful. It's this nature is quite incredible. In my opinion, this event will develop a lot. It's quite possible that in the coming years, more and more students will come here to study singing. And I believe we'll be able to restore the castle, to make it more beautiful, so that the event becomes famous on an international level. Anna's long-term vision for this historical estate, beyond it becoming the host of a renowned annual opera festival, is to turn it into a hotel and wellness centre, but with culture and community firmly at its heart. Involving the local community and the estate owners requires much planning. So my husband, my son and the younger farmers are just registering now a farm for 100 chickens, 100 ducks, uh, I don't know, many goats, uh, the vegetable garden and everything because they have to be small but large enough to be efficient. And they are establishing a sort of association which will then take care of the marketing 
and uh, common services for all the farmers. So really we are having a holistic uh, view about the regeneration of the community. The banquet-style lunch after the opera offered a rather mouth-watering taste of historic local cuisine. An array of succulent cooked meats, wild boar, venison, pork, duck, chicken, as well as truffle risotto and colourful garnishes. There are only products from the region with the very specific uh, type of foods and desserts, the majority being cooked by the old ladies from uh, the village. I have uh, interviewed 47 chefs to make sure that they do understand 47. 47. Because I wanted, you know, people which are also keen in looking at what was the food in the last 100 years and that they can come up with something very simple but at the same tasty and specific. So you will see, for instance, today we will be serving a sweet which is called shuhaida and which is the first uh, Transylvanian cake which was recognized in Europe in 1895. So it's a lot of uh, research. As the evening and the event draw to a close, guests file out to the sound of a rich array of birdsong that fills the old trees. The estate feels reinvigorated with a sense of purpose and optimism. If a project in rural regeneration, it's my uh, belief, does not have a strong social and cultural impact, cannot be successful. You have to touch the soul of the people from the community. Stephen McGrath, DW, Salbeck Castle. Oh, the arias I could sing in praise of rural regeneration. Unfortunately, though, we've come to the end of the show. Our feedback address is, as always, Inside Europe at dw.com. We really do genuinely enjoy reading your emails, so do drop us a line to tell us what you thought of the show or, indeed, if you have any ideas for future topics that we might want to cover. This programme was produced by Helen Sini, with help from me, Kate Laycock, and sound engineers, Gerd Georgi and Leon Novak. Inside Europe comes to you from DW in Bonn, Germany. Germany.